0: Good morning. The scripture reading this this morning is from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said, and when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign in Cana Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some of the ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered his prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said.
1: Thank you, Anne. Well, this is God's word. It's good, especially if we have ears to hear it today. So these two stories didn't take place at exactly the same time, but the writer sees fit that, or is led by the Spirit of God, I believe, to put them both together. This wedding in Cana of Galilee, this small village, and then this Passover cleansing of the temple, this clearing out in Jerusalem, the busier city. So what do they have to do with together, and then what do they have to do with our lives? That's what we're looking at today. So, with that, God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you'd give us eyes to see, that your word, God, would speak to us, and that we would listen. Help us to put ourselves in the text and under the text, that your spirit would speak to us, and uh, God, that you would move in our lives to make a change for what we need to see changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, yesterday I had the privilege of attending a wedding, and it was a rare occasion for me because I got a back row seat in the wedding, which was actually kind of nice because there was some shade, but another story. Usually I have one of the best seats in the house, except it's not really a seat. I'm standing in front of the bride and the groom, the groom and the bride, and I'm getting to see their expressions, their excitement, I get to see their friends all dressed up, and I get to watch the anticipation and the joy that is in these people's faces that are out there watching, but it never fails to amaze me that something always goes wrong. I, I think I mean, yesterday, this couple was freaking out because it was raining, and then it was not raining, and then it was raining, and their their chapel was outside, and the reception was inside. And so, like, do we go out? Do we come in? Do we go out? It was like they were doing this little dance. And I thought about it, and I'm like, why is something, why does something always go wrong? And it just made me think that maybe it's because we put so many expectations on the wedding. Like, it's got to be perfect. I was talking to uh, a couple, well, I was talking to a young woman, and uh, she had told me, this is a year or two ago, that she felt this unbearable pressure to be like the perfect size for the wedding, to the point where she was really unhealthy, and afterwards, she she actually talks about and tries to encourage others to, to never put yourself through this, that... It just wasn't the way, but she just felt this pressure. Another um, person told me about this unbearable pressure that she felt to march in absolutely perfect because the bride, her friend, was like, this is how we will do it. It must go right. I was talking to another person who felt this unbearable pressure to make sure that someone very close to him, like, was all there, ever-present, and wasn't sure if that was going to happen because of his struggle with alcohol. See, we all bring these pressures that come to us. And in the expectations of a wedding, it's easy to see. But I think that there are these expectations that we place on ourselves all the time. And the, the world that we live in, because I'm not saying social media is bad, but I think the social media age that we live in expects everything to be great. Um, I was at this wedding. Someone else was talking about how they got engaged, and they sent the video of how they got engaged to their friends to announce it. I did not. I did not record my engagement, and it would have been kind of funny if we would have, because my wife's. Well, that's our own story, but she just, I'm just saying, if you're a woman that gets proposed to and you like the guy, you should just answer like within, you know, five to 10 seconds. Because if you're in shock and it's 15 or 20, like the guy starts freaking out. That's just a little side business that I think, you know, might be helpful for some of you out there, but not from the Word of God. But I do think there's this pressure to have this perfect proposal and perfect way, like everything. And maybe Bill Murray was onto something. I think we have the, the quote that he said, social media is training us to compare our lives instead of appreciating everything we are. No wonder why everyone is depressed. Now maybe he's not right, but... I believe that Jesus came so that we could celebrate a true celebration, both today and eternally, and in order to do that, we have to make room for what I'm just calling Christ's Party. Now, I think Christ Party is a cute phrase for us to remember, but it involves, first of all, it involves Christ. Christ's Party has to involve Christ, and to make room for it, we've got to let Jesus enter what is ordinary, See, when I look at these stories, they are ordinary stories about everyday life. This wedding celebration took place in what was considered to be a grand event in ordinary life, especially for the people of Jesus' day who were traditionally very poor. They would spend um, months getting prepared for it. The wedding ceremony took place after the wedding dinner, so there was this huge feast, and then afterwards, there would be late in the evening, there would be this ceremony. After the ceremony, the bride and the groom would be paraded throughout town. They'd have a canopy over their heads. They would have um, crowns on their heads. They'd have, the crowds would have torchlights. They'd take the most circuitous route through the city so that the most people possible could wish them well, and then they would put them in their house for the night. And then instead of a honeymoon, then the rest of the week, they would have an open house where they would literally wear crowns and bridal robes. Their word was considered law, and for that week, they were a king and a queen. Never again in their lives would they, for most people that were poor, would they have this much um, attention and celebration given to their lives. But it was in the midst of an ordinary situation that Jesus' presence and his praise was really evident. Now, in a time where there was so much poverty and difficulty, people would remember this for really the rest of their lives. And I don't think we are as financially poor, any of us are as financially poor as they were, but I do think we are spiritually poor. Meaning we can go through all of our lives and make grand celebrations, but miss Christ in the midst of those. And I think we have to let Jesus enter what's ordinary. I mean, t- until that moment where Jesus was invited to act, he was simply a guest at an ordinary wedding that we don't even learn the names of the couple. He just enters this moment and shares in this piece of life that is everyday that, that the world would experience and he wanted to experience it with them. So how do you let Jesus enter what is ordinary in your life? Is it noticing the people around you when they're going through something hard? Is it when, it doesn't even have to be your kid, when a kid is like, oh, look at this thing that I, that I learned. What I discovered. Remember, I would watch the neighborhood kids peel over rocks and like, see all these things crawling on it. It was the grossest thing ever, but I was like, okay, you can man up and do this. Wow. <laughs> I know, I know. But in the midst of that, it was just a moment for me to enter something ordinary and see, you know what? Christ might even be in this. At a wedding, it's noticing the groom. Instead of the bride. Because everyone is looking at the bride. But man, that groom. I mean, there's like trepidation. And, and there's, this, there's also this giddiness. Like this person is standing here looking at me. I think they're going to say yes. <laughs> and it reminds me that Christ is way more like a groom to a bride. Than a king to subjects. I think part of entering what's ordinary and letting Christ enter what is ordinary is noticing his pursuit and his love in the midst of where we are. Uh, the other thing I think that this means for Christ party, it's it's about Christ, but it's also about his joy. And so in order to make room for it, we have to let Jesus fill what's empty. Because, I mean, in the midst of this moment, Mary, his mother, who's not, I mean, from everything we read, she would not be the mother of the groom or the mother of the bride. We think we would probably get that part of the story if. Jesus happens to be invited. It's probably not his family. But she has enough significant pull that she's able to get the servants of this wedding to come over to her son and listen to what needs to happen. Because in this Near East culture, it was honor and shame. And so if you did things well, you brought honor to your family, you brought honor to the town, you brought honor to this couple. If you didn't do things well, if the wine or food runs out, Then you brought shame to your family and shame to the town and dishonor, and that could stick with you for the rest of your life. This was a very, very big deal. This ordinary moment turns into extraordinary distress when Mary says Jesus they have no more wine. See, the wine in Jewish culture was essential. It was not just for it was not just. It was not for getting drunk. I mean, I'm sure that happened, but it really wasn't the point. The point was wine symbolized exhilaration. It symbolized joy, it symbolized celebration. The rabbis even had a saying, without wine there is no joy. So, you could easily replace Mary's words with Jesus, they have no more joy. Now, think about that in the moment of a wedding. I mean, I think we've been there if we've seen it, where there's such distress that happens that they're like, oh man, they have no more joy. Or there's tension between the bridal party or the groom or the bride and the parents, like, where's the joy? Or maybe even, heaven forbid, there's tension between the couple right there, like, do you really want to go through this? There doesn't seem to be joy here. But there's always a moment in the ordinariness of our life where the joy runs out. It's not just a newlywed couple that, that runs out of the infatuation. It's that we start this job and it seems exciting and then the routine of it just like empties and there's no joy left in it. Or we're in the situation with a friend or with our family where the joy runs out. The joy always, always runs out if it's not Jesus' joy. There's even an 11-day-old, like today, an 11-day-old report from the United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention that says the incidence of suicide in the United States has increased 25% since 1999. Now, that's tw- 19 years ago, but... and this report came out in between two high-profile suicides fashion mogul Kate Spade and journalist Anthony Bourdain and what it did is it brought mental health and suicide into our workplace conversations and our dinner table conversations. And that's a good thing for mental health to be talked about and brought out because nobody wants to talk about In every situation that I've sat in with a family who suffered through suicide has said their family or their friends, I never knew they were suffering so much. The experts tell us that people who suffer from, or many people who suffer from anxiety and depression and even suicidal thoughts can be very high-functioning people. They can be doing very well in their career. They can manage uh, healthy relationships. They can be extremely intelligent. In fact, they just can have a high capacity to hide their suffering. See, when the joy ran out at this wedding, do you see what happens? I mean, this is an honor-shame culture. You don't want to bring this out in public. So Mary doesn't bring it out in public, but she does bring it out. She goes to Jesus, and she makes the need known. They have no more joy. Dear woman, it's not my time. Like, I can fix this joy, but it's going to cost me my life, and you're going to set this trajectory, and I don't know that the Father said it's this time. Well, do whatever he tells you. She turns to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. Jesus doesn't actually fill anything until the need is known. Now, I know many of you, so I know you're very high-functioning, capable people who don't like to ask for help. Ever. I don't either. But if we're going to let Jesus fill what's empty... We have to make our need known. Listen to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55. He says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. That should make you go, hmm. Come buy wine and milk, two luxury items, without money and without cost. Wait a second. How do I go to the store and buy something when I don't have money? You ask. You, you ask. You make the need known. See, when you make the need known to Jesus, he fills what's empty with a kind of joy that we can't even explain. I love how the writer's like, you know, the real masters of the ceremony, they bring out the good wine first, then it runs out, then they bring out the cheap stuff. But you save the best till last. And don't miss what the writer's also trying to say to a Jewish and Greek audience that The Jewish ceremonial pots, these six stone jars are empty that are used for religious ritual. Because also what Jesus is doing is he's having the empty ritual run out. Because no longer will we have this relationship with God that's filled with empty ritual. It will be filled with the new joy of his kingdom, of having this overflowing relationship with Jesus. Don't miss that part because that's what he wants to do in our life. And it's something that is always improving. Like if you are, I'm told, uh, because I've done a couple wine tastings, that if you get really good at wine tasting, you can actually get even better at distinguishing the flavors. And one thing that I think Jesus does is that the joy in our lives, while it can diminish in just the natural things of life, The joy of Jesus never really diminishes. In fact, it gets better as we get more attuned to the flavors and the smells and the experiences. And so, where are you making your need known to Jesus? And I would add a small group of people that care. Because Mary brings the servants who know what's going on and know about the miracle. I don't think that's a small detail. I think that's something the writer wants us to catch. I think that's something the Spirit of God wants us to catch today, that you can make your need known to Jesus, but it shouldn't only be Jesus. Bring that small group of people that know you that can make the need known and that can actually do something about it. Jesus doesn't do it on his own. He actually tells the servants to get involved with it. We need people to be involved in our lives if we're really going to make room for Christ's party. So it's first about joy, or it's first about Christ, it's second about joy, and then it's about the true way to a relationship with God. I mean, the only thing I can think of why a wedding feast that Christ fills and a temple, like a festival for the temple that Christ cleanses and cleans out is that there's something about A way to a relationship with God that's being highlighted, that's being healed, that might even be fixed. See, in order to make room for the true way to God, we have to let Jesus make sacred what we make superficial. I think we have to let Jesus make sacred what we make superficial. See, because Jesus didn't come to infect us with this religiosity virus where we would do and say the right things and we would look good and then we would be good. And I think real parents know that, true parents and good parents know that just having your kid be good or look good or say the right things doesn't make them good. And that's what God understands in this. When Christ leaves Cana and goes to Capernaum, it's a short walk, and they're probably riding the high of this miracle. It's an easy walk. It's a small town. They stay there for a few days. They're running this high. And then it's time for the Passover. And there's a month of preparation for the Passover. The Jews fix the bridges, they repair the roads, they re-whiten the temple. There's this expectation that's like little kids at Christmas. And so as they're walking to Jerusalem, because this is a festival where everyone has to go they see all of these people coming into this, you know, city, but a small city that just gets quadrupled or quintupled. I don't know. There's like 10 times more people there than normal. And so you have to imagine that the crowds get bigger and bigger. Like, drive down to Minneapolis with the road construction, and it would feel like that. Except instead of people being all polite to get to the place they go, Like, they might be grumpy, but then there's like all these salesmen on the sides of the road selling their trinkets and souvenirs. And that doesn't even, I mean, I'm sure that kind of annoys Jesus a little bit, but when he enters the city and he sees the cream and the the gold walls of the temple, and then he sees the money changers that are claiming this has to happen because foreign money will not work at the temple. And so instead of, you know, doing fair exchanges what they do is every time they have to change one small coin to another coin, they charge a transaction fee. So to go from these coins, one, two, three, four, to get to these coins to the acceptable place in the temple, they'll give four transactions. The point is extortion. And not only that, then the temple inspectors spend 18 months on a farm to learn what a clean or approved animal is and an unapproved animal. So when you bring your animals where you're going to come to the temple because the animal sacrifice at Passover is not only the way that you bring your sacrifice, it's also the way that you are right with God. This is the gateway to being right with God. And they come and they look at the animal. Oh, that's not acceptable. Sorry, the the animal that you've spent months and months preparing, yep, it's it's got a flaw in some way. But come over here to Bob's, you know, Billy Goat farm. Here we have all of these approved goats and sheep that are available for you at the temple price. And the high priest is buying the whole thing. He owns the money changers and he owns the inspectors. Do you see why Jesus is completely outraged? There's supposed to be an easy way for people to come and get right with God, and they are making it into a market, and they are making it into a scam, and they're making it extremely hard for people to come to the presence of God. Now, that's just an old story, because we never make it hard for people to, you know, come into God's presence, right? We never make it about money. We make superficial what should be sacred. Here's what A.W. Tozer, on why he wrote the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says. And this is written over 50 years ago, but I believe it speaks to where we're at today. With the loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and awareness of the divine presence we've lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in reverent silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kinds of Christians who can appreciate or experience the life of the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing, to the self-confident and busy worshiper, 50 years ago. Even while we sit in church, the bazaars of suburbia can be spinning through our heads. We can be thinking about our next business deal we're going to close, the athletic events we're going to attend, the shopping trips or the social parties. When we become desensitized to the greatness and holiness of God, our service to God and the spirit of God in us shrinks in our souls. Send me an email if you want if you want a copy of that. It is powerful and true. How do we make room for what's sacred in a world that's superficial? How do we praise? Does our worship reveal a reverence towards God? that is awesome and powerful and present and personal? When we sing songs, do we sing them with our mouth or with our heart? Do we see this time of coming together and gathering as God's people just something we do because we're supposed to? If we do that, we're telling people God is distant and dead. But it's amazing to be with people who love what you love who experience God in their everyday life and this is just kind of the icing on the cake when to come together and to hear what others say about how they've experienced God this week, how they've struggled with God this week, how they have been forgiven this God this week or how they're struggling to be forgiven. It is so good to be with people who love the God you love. Notice how when Jesus drives these things things, I'm giving it away, out of the temple. He talks about driving the money out, driving the cattle out, driving the sheep out. Never once does it say he's driving the people out. That's the love that Jesus has for God and for God's people. Even when these people are, are, are making a mockery of Christ's temple, of God's temple, never once does he kick them out. I think God might have something to say to us about that. I think part of making room, letting Christ make sacred what we've made superficial is actually pretty simple. It's noticing people over the celebration. I I saw this video um, in several different places and I said, "This, this describes what it means to make sacred what people make superficial. Here we have a Moundsview pitcher who is pitching for the last inning and the last out for his team to go to state. And I'll let you watch it because it's worthy of celebration, but notice what he does. Oh, no. No, instead I'm going to go speak to my best friend from childhood who played a bunch of Little League games together, and though we went to different schools... It's more important for me to speak to him about the type of person he is and the type of player he is, and even though his season's done, there's time for me to celebrate with my team later. That's what it means to make sacred what we make superficial. Celebrating a game is just a game. Consoling a friend and speaking into their soul, that's sacred. That's what it means 2 Corinthians 6 says that we are the temple of the living God. The Spirit of God is in us. He says, I will live with them and walk with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. When we realize that Christ was driving the markets out because he was transforming our idea of not only the joy of the kingdom, but the relationship of God to us, that it's not about a place, It's about a people and it's about noticing the sacred moments and entering them. That's when we see Christ's party, his joy, his praise come through our lives more and more. And it really, really can be simple. As the band comes up, I just want to close with this story of a pastor who discovered how simple the sacred can be. He says, if I'm honest, I... When we drove to visit my daughter and her family, I was just excited to sleep in with my exhausted self rather than go to church with them. Good job, Pastor, because we're human too. So a few hours later, when I'm sitting in the recliner and I hear the dog bark and the garage door open, then I hear my little granddaughter, Ada, come strutting happily in the house and say, I had good church, Papa. And immediately, he choked up he realized he'd allowed the phrase good church to become jaded and loaded in his mind. Because whenever someone in his congregation said good church, they were talking about the quality of the message or the quality of the music or the way certain elements were conducted. And yet his two-year-old granddaughter Ada, when she said good church, couldn't possibly mean those things because Ada's church experience consisted of riding in the car with loving parents, going into a preschool classroom where she was greeted by a kind and loving Miss Beth, listening to a simple story about how Jesus loved people, hanging out with a group of two-year-olds that may or may not be in a loving mood, and then having a few goldfish crackers and some juice, which were probably served lovingly. That's what good church meant to Ada a goodness that she so profoundly and deeply felt that she walked in and proclaimed, I had good church today, Papa. Think about it. No matter what family you come from, loving parents, a loving adult, mentor person in your life, a loving Jesus, mostly loving peers, Could it be that good church for Ada is actually what it means to be good church for all of us and that that in itself is sacred? I think if we make room for that in our lives, we will see more of Christ's joy, more of his praise, more of his party in our lives every day. Jesus went on the road to give his life. His authority for doing what he did was destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. It took his life and his death to make a way for us. But praise God that God made a way that any of us, no matter who we are or what we've done, can come to him. And that is worthy of his joy. God, would you meet us right now, Spirit? Speak to us, God, because some of us have lost our joy. It's the joy of life in the ordinariness that's run empty. We've been going through the motions, but we haven't let you fill it, or we haven't let our need be made known, or we've made superficial what, Really, you meant to be sacred. God, speak to us about even the simple, already in our lives moments that we just need to see and celebrate. Encourage and remind us that you made a way through your sacrificial death for any and all of us to have relationship with you. Thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.